have your Bibles, just go ahead, open up to Luke chapter 2. This is where we'll be today. We'll be viewing uh, the Christmas story, the birth of Christ, through uh, the lens of the shepherds. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you in the pew. You can feel free to use that. But it's going to be Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. We're going to go ahead and read our passage today. We'll all read our passage, and then, uh, and then we'll continue in our service. It says this, Luke 2, verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch of their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was, an, there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as had been told them. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we are so thankful for your word, Lord, this time of year. We are so thankful to, to ponder, to think over uh, the significance of your son coming in human flesh to rescue us, Lord, to save us. So I just pray now as we open your word that you would speak through me, that you would help us to submit to your word, to understand your word, and that it would truly affect us even outside these doors, Lord. So we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, if any of you know a little bit about me, one of uh, my hobbies, I guess you could call it, is really studying the cosmos a bit, reading books about it, reading, uh, watching documentaries, whatever the case may be, I'm sort of fascinated with the things of beyond this earth. Um, and if you know anything about studying the cosmos, whether you've done it in, in school, in some official manner, or some informal manner, you learn very, very quickly, you start dealing with some huge 
huge numbers. Numbers that we're just usually not used to thinking of in the day-to-day life. And so you start measuring things out in the universe, uh, temperatures, sizes, shapes, distances, speed, time, all these types of things and these enormous numbers. And we just frankly don't have a very good intuitive sense beyond the thousands. You know, we hear something in the thousands and we're used to dealing with that. We kind of have this intuitive sense, okay, I know how much a thousand to 10,000 to 100,000. But sort of when it starts getting in the millions and billions and trillions, we sort of lose that intuitive sense of how much larger one number is than the other. So something that's been helpful for me in studying this is sort of converting these large numbers into things my mind can grasp. And I found the most easy uh, one to do it is to convert things into seconds. And so 1,000 seconds is about 16 and a half minutes. One million seconds is about 11 and a half days. And so, like I said, intuitively you kind of know that. But this is where it sort of breaks down. So from a million to a billion, a billion seconds is about 31 years. That's how much bigger a billion is than a million. It goes from an 11 and a half days to 31 years. And when you go even further to a trillion, a trillion seconds turns into about 317 centuries. 317 centuries. And so these are the kinds of numbers they're using to measure things in space. When you think about these things, the Earth, when it comes down to it, is one of 4,000 planets that we know of in the observable universe. The earth is currently, on the earth, is currently about 7.5 billion people. You are just one of 7.5 billion people. That means if we counted someone every second on the face of the earth, it would take 237 years before you got your one second of fame to be named. Our galaxy, the Milky, or sorry, the sun, rather, the one that's shining outside, it's approximately one in a hundred billion stars that we know of. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, is one of two trillion galaxies. Two trillion. That's 2,000 billion galaxies. And those are just the ones we can see from Earth. And so it could be rightly said, mathematically speaking at least, frankly, we're all kind of just nobodies. We're rather insignificant when it comes to the grand scale of the universe, mathematically speaking. But consider today that yes, you're just that one person, but even going even further, all these things were rather insignificant. Even all the circumstances in your life that's led you up to this moment standing here right now. So think of all the alternatives of where you could have been born. That you were born at this time, in this place, in this country, in this history. That all the decisions that you've made in your life, all the decisions people have made that have affected you, all the decisions people have made for you, and yet you're still sitting here right now. It's really astonishing when you start thinking about things on that scale. It makes you feel small. It makes you feel insignificant. It's a great Christmas message, right? Go home. What did the pastor tell you? He told me I'm insignificant. That sounds great. What a jolly Christmas. But it's true. And I think, I think to be honest, the most joy that we have in life is knowing 
when we're insignificant. We go to see great things, amazing things, having amazing experiences, not because usually those things are focused on us, but because they're focused on something outside of ourselves that is incredible. And that's where that phrase comes from, of sort of just losing yourself, of you're not thinking of yourself when you're experiencing that type of joy. And the reason I tell you all this is really this type of thinking, I think, would have captured sort of the scandalous nature of the Savior's birth being announced first to shepherds. That's sort of how the first century readers would have thought, like, really? Savior of the world coming to shepherds. That's who, that's the first one to hear it. God incarnate. News of the Savior to a group of nobodies, some unnamed shepherds on the outskirts of a dinky town in the late hours of the night, watching over some smelly animals. And this is who God chooses to tell first. But the good news, the gospel, really, the truth is, the gospel is for nobodies. It's for nobodies like me. It's for nobodies like the shepherds. It's for nobodies like you. And in the grand scale, we're rather insignificant. But God has done something incredible. And the nobodies, it's exactly who Jesus came for. And so my aim today or the goal of my sermon is really rather simple. And it's that you would humbly respond as a seemingly insignificant person as the shepherds did to the good news of the Savior's birth. With two things, with faith and with worship. And so when it comes to the Christmas story in America, we kind of, there's one of two things we do. There tends to be an over, uh, kind of uh, over-sentimentalizing it. I could not say that word for service. Uh, I was overestimated how long it was. So there's a tendency towards that, or there's a tendency of sort of uh, dismissing it all as a nice story and a nice myth. And I would submit to you, when you read the Gospels, and especially Luke, that's not the way it's set up, and it's not the way first century readers would have read it. And so, if you turn with me, the first, I want to show you guys this, but in the first uh, four verses of Luke, Luke chapter 1, look how Luke starts this Gospel before we even get to the birth narrative of Jesus. He says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to complete a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write a what? An orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught." Sounds like the beginning of a textbook or something, doesn't it? That they're going to tell you a history. And that's what Luke does. Luke, we learn from the Gospels, was a medical doctor and a historian. He very much intended to just tell the story as it had happened and interviewed the people who had experienced it and to just to tell it how it was, not to make things up. And so it would seem in the writer of uh, the words of Mark Twain, the famous writer, the truth really is stranger than fiction. The truth is stranger than fiction. And so when you look at the story of Jesus' birth, if you kind of understand the context in the first century, if you wanted people to believe Jesus was some sort of God or the Son of God, this is not the story you would come up with to convince people of these things. 
And it was very much not sentimental. And I think there's a lot of rough things we miss as we gloss over this passage with familiarity. Before we get to that, I think it would be helpful today if we sort of understand the context. And so to help you guys understand a little bit sort of the scandalous or peculiar nature of this whole narrative. And so if you go back to Luke chapter 2, we're going to go through the first six verses and talk a little bit about context. It begins, in those days a decree went out from who? From Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be registered. Luke begins this narrative of Jesus' birth with a decree that none other than Caesar Augustus. Augustus, if you know anything about history, was a fascinating person. Fascinating person. Adopted son of Julius Caesar. His former name was Octavius. He was actually given the title Augustus. And Augustus means that title, anointed one, holy one, majestic one. And Augustus was probably unquestionably the most successful of the Roman emperors. He was charismatic. He was a fierce warrior. He was intelligent. He was educated. He was all of these things. And it was under Augustus that really in Rome, this idea of emperor worship began as he was declared the first emperor, even though he was the second Caesar. And he sort of made this cultic setup for people to worship. And it wasn't long after that people started worshiping the dead Julius Caesar, referring to him as God. And so naturally what began to happen is they printed money. And on the face of that money was Augustus' head. And below that it read Divi Filius, which means the son of God. And so Augustus was known as the son of God. And Augustus was given other titles as well. He was called divine. He was called the savior. He was called the redeemer. He was called the liberator. His birth marked good news for the Roman citizens, or at least that's the sort of propaganda narrative they told. And it's ironic, isn't it? That, that's where Luke begins the story. The true Son of God, Jesus Christ, born in complete juxtaposition to Augustus. He was everything that Augustus was truly not. Jesus was these things in truth. Jesus was the true divine Son of God from heaven, born a virgin. Jesus was the true Savior rescuing his people from an eternity of suffering in hell. Jesus was the true peacemaker, bringing peace not just between man, but between man and God. Jesus was the true Redeemer, buying back his people who were enslaved to sin and darkness. Jesus was the true liberator, setting those that held, held captive by the devil's power free from their captor. But here Jesus was being born in humble circumstances, not in the emperor's palace, not in robes, not to a royal family. He was born to a country oppressed by foreign rule, to parents who are peasants, who are forced to make a difficult journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, all to really pay taxes for probably what little they owned. And that's what the census was ultimately for, to count the people so that they would pay taxes to the government. 
And like any good historian, Luke notes in there even more details, and he talks about Quirinius being the governor at the time of Syria, someone who's well-documented in history, even outside of the Bible, and, what he, and his actions and political career in Syria. So, and continuing on, we read a little bit that the reason they traveled, Mary and Joseph, to Bethlehem was to be registered, each had his own town, and then it adds the detail that Joseph was of the lineage of David. And now this is something that would have been a little bit unusual because usually they would just tax people where they live because that's where you owned your property. So they could assess, this is what you own, therefore this is what you owe. But something that was also common in the Roman Empire, as they learned from the Persians, is that they often allowed people to keep their local customs, their local traditions, as not to upset the people and actually accept Roman rule as sort of a, a newfound freedom and a new benefit to them to be Roman citizens. And so it was very important to the Jewish culture that you knew your lineage, that you knew where you came from, you knew what tribe you were in, and their culture, a lot of things were centered around that. And it's also just possible that if uh, Joseph was born there and he was the oldest son, or he just grew up there, then there he would have property. And so maybe he even just went there because that's where much of his property was. But whatever the case, they make their way to Bethlehem. And Bethlehem, as, as Luke says, was the city of David, a place where people knew that the Messiah should come from and would come from, ultimately, from the lineage of David. And it was only about five, six miles away outside the city of Jerusalem, but it was a pretty rural place. And even today, Bethlehem is not too large a city. And so we go on in verse 7, in the last part of this context here, it says, And she, referring to Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. And this is sort of a part where our English translations can be a little bit misleading. If you don't know or you're not very church, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And the words used there is actually not an inn, like a motel, or there wasn't like a keeper there, but it was actually the room for a guest room. And so more realistically, this is kind of a picture of what it would have looked like. What was happening is they were traveling to their hometown, and you would have depended on your relatives to stay there. And so they probably got there a bit late. Um, and their relatives had already come in, and so someone was already staying in the room upstairs. And so naturally, the next place for them to stay is not to throw them outside, but to actually put them inside. And so you can kind of see in the bottom there, there's a kitchen and a storage area and a small place for animals. And so it was common, they would put a little animal pen right there next to the kitchen. You could feed your animals while you're eating dinner. You didn't have to go outside in the cold. You didn't have to protect them. And so that was just a natural place of just stay here in the courtyard near and with the animals. And so from there, that's kind of where we come to our passage today, beginning in verse 8 with the shepherds. And so if you're someone who loves outlines, this is sort of going to be in our outline today, but it shows you that any, pretty much everything surrounding Jesus' birth was not typical. There was an unlikely audience, the shepherds, an unexpected announcement. They didn't know that was coming. An unusual sign, not a sign like given in the rest of the New Testament. An unanticipated journey. They didn't think they were going to go into town that day. And an unconventional celebration. 
It was an interesting first Christmas, to say the least. So let's go on to the first one, an unlikely audience. We read again in verse 8 and 9. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the fields, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. The first people to hear the news of the Savior's birth was rather underwhelmingly a group of nameless shepherds standing out in the middle of the field, taking shifts in the night watch. I don't know about you guys, I have a couple of Japan stories because we just came back from Japan. Uh, my wife and I are quite the adventurers and we just like to find random places. So with unlimited train rides from what we had in Japan that we had already paid for, we found some rural, odd, off-the-wall places, or off-the-track, I should say. Uh, and so I don't know about you guys, but I'm just thankful that I have one of those wives who just trusts in my sense of direction and that where we're going is going to be somewhere great. And then inside, I'm hoping this is going to be as great as I saw the picture online or something like that. Uh, but we would take uh, some trains to some middle of nowhere places. And you know like you're in the middle of nowhere when someone's like Japanese grandmother is trying to speak to you in Japanese at a bus stop with no one else around. So we ended up in those type of places and I couldn't help but think this is a little bit of what it was like that angel appearing to those shepherds. It's just some people in the middle of nowhere with really no one else around. To give it a little closer uh, example, it'd be like It'd be like uh, Prim, which is the city that you pass through on the way to Vegas. It would be like the angel appearing to a group of construction workers out there working on the road in the middle of the night outside of Prim. It's just like, what? It's the middle of nowhere. That's what it would be like. And so when it comes to shepherds as Christians, we sort of have a, f- uh, a familiarity with shepherds and a good vision of them. But actually in Roman society, they were quite despised. Their occupation was extremely isolating. They were typically viewed as thieves and lowly status among the Romans. They were viewed frequently as being dishonest, as being uh, untrustworthy, and they often traveled from home for long periods of time. And so they lived sort of this hermit lifestyle. People probably didn't know them super well. They probably didn't have a lot of extra time. And so naturally, I think people just didn't trust them that much. Not to mention, said in Roman society, it's not the type of occupation you want to have. It was extremely laborious. You got up early in the morning to feed your flock. You watched over them all day, ensuring that none strayed. You had to keep the wild animals off. You chased after the sheep that went astray. You brought them home at sundown. You had to count every single one. And then you basically took a night shift out there in the middle of nowhere, watching over the flock. And that was your day. And that was your every day. And I think the main point here of Luke bringing up the shepherds and showing he's the only narrative that has it or includes it. He's trying to make the point that the shepherds were representative of the type of people who would gladly receive the message of good news of the gospel. They were humble. They were lowly. They were outcasts. They knew that they needed a savior. And these are the exact type of people Jesus spent his ministry talking to. That he spent most of his time with. Not with the religious elite, not with the wealthy, but with the poor, with the destitute, with the nobodies. The people that others just forgot about or never really thought much of. 
And sort of contrary to popular opinion these days about Jesus, I don't think he did it because he was some sort of uh, social activist or socialist or something like that. Certainly Jesus coming to those people exemplified the compassion of God for anyone. But I think, honestly, Jesus spent most of his time with those people because those are the ones who received him. Those are the ones that knew they needed him. And so though they were the ones who were physically poor, they were rich in faith. And it, it was often the ones who were very religious, very churched, if you would. They were the ones who were spiritually bankrupt. They're the ones who didn't see it. They didn't, they didn't get it. They were the ones always arguing with Jesus. And so at this point, you might expect some long lecture from me. I'm a pastor, and it's Christmas about materialism and all these expensive gifts and things like that. But I have to say, I don't even think Jesus would say that. I mean, you could go home and tell somebody, even in the gospel, basically a woman breaks a year's worth of salary spent on a perfume over Jesus and he praises it for her. So how's that for a good gift? Spend a year's worth of salary for a gift. But Jesus praises. God, Jesus, they have no problem with riches for the right uses. God just does not want riches to have us. There's a reason why Jesus said it's difficult for someone who's rich or, uh, to enter the kingdom of God. They have things to lose. They don't want to give it up. They're proud. They like their things. So God just doesn't want your riches to have you. He doesn't want your riches to have your heart. And so don't forfeit the eternal riches of God for the temporary riches of this world. Because the shepherds were humble. Think of the universe. Think of your place in the world. We're not that all that important. The world will go on without us. Even think in a hundred years. How many people do you know from a hundred years ago that personally have affected you? One, maybe two, maybe a handful. But that's it. That's all. But don't forfeit those riches in Christ. They will last for an eternity. But we got to move on to verses 10 and 11, which is the unexpected announcement, the unexpected announcements that comes to the shepherds. And the angel said to them in verse 10, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now when it comes to this point in the story and sort of involving angels, this is where it starts to get in the realm of people getting uh, skeptical. Sort of, this is sort of a mythical thing. Now we have this angel appearing. And even I found a lot of Christians and sort of embarrassed about this idea of angels. And I really don't know why. I really don't know why. It's perplexing to me why. Like, you believe in a God who created the universe, sovereignly controls all things, yet he couldn't create this being who could deliver a message from heaven to earth. A God who rained down fire upon Sodom and Gomorrah, split the waters of the Red Sea, brought the walls down of Jericho, but angels, that's where it's like, no, cross the line. Angels are just too weird. 
And even skeptics, that's what they'll say. They're like, oh, really, an angel? And of course, if your presupposition coming in is there is no God, lots of things aren't going to be possible. And I think that's something, if you're not a Christian and you're here today, I would challenge you to consider is your presuppositions. You have things you believe just because you believe them. Everyone has a presupposition. And if you're going to start with the basis that there is no God, of course everything in the Bible is going to be unbelievable to you. And for you Christians, as we're talking to others, realize that they have those presuppositions and those are something as we evangelize we need to discuss, that we need to talk about. It's going to be really hard to convince someone of the Son of God being who he really said he was if they, frank, if they don't really believe there is a God in the first place. To give you guys even a little bit of illustration that I thought of earlier today, I'm going to throw Rick, Pastor Rick right under the bus because he's not here. But, uh, and don't worry, I promise there will be no spoilers in this illustration for you people out there. But uh, a bunch of us, including Pastor Rick, went to go see the new Star Wars movie. So we went there and we were sitting there in the lobby afterwards and I asked Rick what he thought and he said, you know, it just wasn't very realistic or grounded in reality. And I was like, (laughs) Rick, you know this is a movie about space wizards with laser swords in another galaxy, right? But it just cracked me up. But it shows what Rick's presupposition was. He went into a fictional movie thinking it was going to have some form of reality to it. It's just not the case. And it's the same thing when people come to the Bible. They come with their presuppositions expecting that the Bible is somehow going to fit into the world that they have created and it doesn't and therefore they dismiss it. But that doesn't make them right. But for Christians, I think the reason sort of angels makes us uneasy is we haven't studied it much and typically what we picture in our mind is sort of one of these two things it's those creepy cherub things your grandma kept around her house sorry for anyone who has this that's just what I think of them or they think of this sort of figure like a womanly figure who's kind of nice and she's got the two wings and she's so pleasant and so that's kind of what we think of but frankly that's not what, how the Bible describes angels. It's not at all. In scriptures, angels are described as coming in a man-like figure, dressed as a warrior, oftentimes with a sword. They came in uh, beams of light. The gospel even describes their appearance as lightning. And so instead, what you should picture in your mind is a man coming, dressed in armor, dressed as a warrior, with an appearance like lightning, and you will have an idea of why the shepherds were afraid. They thought they were going to die. <laughs> they thought this thing, this person, this creature was going to kill them. And that is why great fear gripped them. And it's an amazing thing to me that when you actually read the narrative as well, that it says it is the glory of the Lord that shows forth from the angels. It's not their own glory. The glory of God is reflected from them because they remain in the presence of God. And so when we have that accurate picture, we understand why they were afraid. And why angels, the first thing they always had to do, it seems, when they came is tell people not to fear. Don't worry, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not here to disintegrate you or set you on fire or do whatever it is you think I'm going to do. I actually bring good news to you. And in the Bible, 
It often occurs when very significant things happen that God actually sends an angel. So after they calmed down a bit, I think the shepherds would have known something big was about to go down. And so the angel announces in uh, angel announces that he brings good news of great joy and that it's for all the people. And I think specifically, talking to the shepherds here, he is talking about Israel, but I think his point is, it's for all kinds of people, shepherds. It's for you, it's for the elite, it's for the wealthy, it's for the poor, it's for the immoral, it's for the moral, it's for the religious, it's for the irreligious. This news is for all kinds of people. It's all kinds of people. And so, he's, and so the angels declare this, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom God is pleased. And I think the main point here the angel is making is the gospel is really for everyone. It is. It's for absolutely for everyone. No matter what your moral background is, your socioeconomic background, no matter how heinous the sins that you've committed or insignificant, uh, you are of a person. The Savior is for you. Notice the personal nature of the announcements. He says unto the shepherds uh, in verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Unto you, shepherds, personally. And I think it's the same message for us. Unto you, sitting here right now, a Savior is born. And he's here to save sinners, of which the Bible presupposes that all men are. All men are sinners, all men and women. But Jesus came for us. So then we move on to the unusual sign in verses 12 through 14. The unusual sign and typical of amazing works done by God. Uh, the appearance of an angel, the appearance of a messenger was accompanied by a sign. And it was a rather unusual sign. And so when you first read this, or when I first read this, I had to think, is this the type of sign like, that Jesus did signs? Like healing the sick, healing the blind, walking on water, these types of things. I don't think it was quite like that. It was a sign meant to guide the shepherds to the child of which they had been told. And to be honest, when you first read this passage, or at least when I first read this passage, the sign's not quite as impressive as the rest of the gospel. You might think, wow, Savior of the world. What will it be? Is that going to be like a pillar of fire over his house like in the Old Testament? It's going to have the appearance of like the angels, like lightning or something. It's going to have superpowers, spectacular throne, some really cool crown, something. Nope, just go look for this baby. Um, all right, a baby. And he added, it's a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. Again, it seems a bit underwhelming. I couldn't help but think of one of the shepherds there. He's like, oh, this is spectacular and all. So thank you for not killing us, Mr. Angel. But could you be a bit more specific? I know Bethlehem's a small town, but lots of babies are born and put into claws, just like they are today. There could be 10 children down there. We could be looking in town all day. But then he adds one more detail, even more specifically, that he'll be laying in a manger. And that would have been unique. To find a kid wrapped in clothes in a feeding trough, that would have been 
unique. Also unique or spectacularly unusual was really what the shepherds saw, saw next. They saw a host surrounding the angel singing praises to God. A host is a term that typically refers to an army. That's what the Bible uses the word host for. If you know anything about the Bible and you hear God called the Lord of hosts, what it's saying is, is God is the Lord of these armies, these angelic armies. And so that picture of him is the picture of him as sort of this general warrior. He's the Lord of hosts. And so they see this army appear before them singing praises to God. And isn't it an amazing thing? But when the armies of God appeared to those shepherds, the armies of God came to declare peace between man and God, not to declare war. Armies typically come for war, not to declare peace, but that's what they had come for, for a declaration of peace. Not peace between man and man, as we typically think, goodwill amongst men, but God's will towards men. Look what it says there in verse 14 in chapter 2. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those whom with he is pleased. It's not a peace toward everyone. The question is, how do you obtain peace with God? The angel's worship answers that question. Peace with God comes from God's pleasure, from God's favor. And there's only one way to gain God's favor, through repentance and faith in the Savior. God is pleased only with those who are in Christ. You know, when we were in Japan, uh, Hannah and I visited the Peace Museum in Hiroshima. If you don't know, Hiroshima is one of the two cities that the U.S. had dropped an atomic bomb on during World War II. As you imagine, it was quite the intense and heavy experience. And um, it's something that I was really um, moved to see, to be honest. Hope that someday maybe I could take my kids there and help them understand violence, war. It's not a great thing. It's not something to be glorified and a horrific thing happened in that city and 137,000 people died that day. But the interesting thing to me was when we came to the end of the museum and they sort of have this, this layout of uh, what they're actively doing in Pollux these days and how they have an active uh, organization that works to, for atomic warfare to never happen again. And I pray, and I hope you pray, and everyone does, that it will never happen again. But there's also a lot on sort of this idea of world peace and the world being at peace. And frankly, I couldn't help but think there will never be peace on the earth until people have peace with God. Mankind will never have true, genuine peace amongst one another until there is peace with God. And yes, there's governments, there's laws, and praise God for those things, that those things have been instituted. The Bible says God has created those things to actually restrain the evil amongst humanity. 
and praise God for those things. But to have true, genuine peace where the continual desire of your inner person is nothing but the best for your fellow man, that can only come from knowing the Prince of Peace, of knowing God. You see, contrary to popular belief, the Bible teaches that human nature is not basically good. It's not just good. In fact, it's the opposite. It's twisted. It's evil. It's wrong. Even Jesus himself taught evil isn't something that just exists outside of us or happens to us, but in fact, it predominantly comes from within of us, out of our heart. Murder, adultery, evil thoughts, theft, all these things come from the heart of a man. Human nature is corrupted. The heart is tainted. We're sinners even from the womb. It's natural for us to lie, to cheat, to act in self-interest, in self-preservation. For those of you with little kids, you know it. You did not have to teach your little kid the first time how to lie, how to take something from their sibling, how to retaliate. That came naturally. What you had to teach them is how to share, to be unselfish, to be kind, to tell the truth. That's because it is within their nature to be a sinner. Kids, if you're in here, it's true what your parents tell you. They discipline you because they love you. They want you to know what the wrong you are doing. And that's so you can ask forgiveness from God. It really is true. And so the good news of the gospel is that Jesus, as the Savior, has accomplished what no other human being could. You can't do a good enough things to make up the bad. You just can't. It's not going to wipe it away. You will be judged for the crimes that you have committed independent of the good you may have done when you stand before God someday. And so Jesus accomplished what no one else could. He lived a perfect life. He died a substitutionary death on your behalf, taking upon himself the wrath of God. That's what he saved us from. God's righteous wrath towards sin and rebellion. That's what was owed to us and Jesus died for. His victory over sin and death, it was really vindicated when he did rise from the tomb three days later. And it's through trusting in that simple truth that really two things occur. Two things occur when you trust in that. And the moment it happens, your sins are forgiven and Christ's life, perfect life is transferred to you. And so if you're a Christian or if you've placed your trust in Christ, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your marred life. He doesn't see your sin, not because you're not actually a sinner, but because Christ has lived a perfect life in your place. He has not just forgiven you, he has given you righteousness. So that when he sees you, he sees his perfect son. As if you have lived the perfect life that Christ has lived. And so if you're someone that has not done that, come. Do as the shepherds did. Flee to Christ. They ran down to that town to see the Savior. The Savior welcomes anybody. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter where you are. You could put your trust in him right now. And I would encourage you, don't let another Christmas, don't let another hour go by not thinking about the state of your soul. Christ, he's the good shepherd. 
He's kind. He's gentle. He's merciful. He's a forgiving master. It is a good, the best life to know Christ. But next we have the unanticipated journey of the shepherds in verse 15 through 17. Taking that journey into town, they didn't expect And notice in verse 15, it says, let us go over to Bethlehem, the shepherd said, and see this thing that has happened. Who who made known to us? The Lord has made known to us. They rightly discerned that the angel's message was from God, not just an angel. So they ran with haste to find the child. And in verse 16, it tells us they found Mary and Joseph and the child, just as the angel had told them. But I can't help but think, what was it like for the shepherds on the way to town that night? It it would have took them a little bit to get there. Realizing the dramatic contrast of what they had just seen. They had met an angel. An incredible experience. And now they were going to find this human child sitting or laying in a feeding trough. It's a pretty dramatic contrast. The Savior, the Messiah, the Lord is right now laying in a feeding trough with farm animals, I wonder if they thought. And you have to assume, right? They went into town. There must have been several wrong doors. They didn't know the house. Just knocking at people's door like, hey, it's the middle of the night. We heard this baby, this angel appeared to us. We got to find him. Did you hear about anyone being born? They should be in the, you know, with the animals. Wonder really how many kind of awkward conversations they had. And speaking of awkward, I haven't been uh, someone who's been in sort of the waiting room after someone's delivered before. None of my siblings have had kids yet. Uh, No one's super close to me as yet. So I've always, you know, sort of seen the kids when they've come home. But there's one thing I've learned or at least heard of is that while you're in the waiting room, you know, they're very particular about the type of people who can come in to see the mom and baby. And you just think of Mary and Joseph on that first Christmas like, uh, honey, There's a bunch of strange shepherd men here to see our new child. (laughs) This is a bit awkward. (laughs) And so no wonder when you read in the narrative, it says right away in 17, and when they saw it, they must have seen him because it would have been open from the picture you saw earlier. They told everyone what they had seen concerning the child. They're like, okay, we got to tell them before people get freaked out about what's happened. And this amazing thing that has happened. And so then we read, um, yeah, they found him. They found him in a manger. Actually, what I wanted to say is here, it's really a picture of the way God works, isn't it? Wick quoted uh, this passage last week, but I still think it's appropriate. It says this in 1 Corinthians 27 through 28. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. God loves to use the unexpected, the humble, to show that it had nothing to do with our own effort. It had nothing to do with what we accomplished, but everything to do with what God has accomplished. 
And so there you have it. Jesus, the creator of the universe, came into the universe, the world that he made just by speaking, and there was no room for him. There was no room for him. Jesus entered the world, and he was given a feeding trough, and he left the world, and he was given a cross. And the angels for whom Christ did not come praised him in heaven, but most of the earth remained silent that night. Just some family, some random shepherds. That's all who was there. The king of the universe born as a peasant. Question is, how about you this Christmas season? Does the worship of your life remain silent in regards to the Savior? We all worship something. You worship something. You invest your time in it. You invest your thought life in it. You invest your money in it. You invest your energy. That's the way we're made. That's the way God made us. We all worship something. But the great truth of this life is Anything not done for the glory of Christ, it's going to fade away in light of eternity. It's going to fade away if it's not done for Christ. One of my favorite analogies of the brevity of life comes from Ecclesiastes, which is one of my favorite books, which the author repeatedly tells us life is like a vapor. It's like the breath that appears in cold weather and disappears. That's what your life is in light of eternity. But what you choose to do in this short time will determine your eternity. People often ask, is there going to be a second chance after this life? Is there going to be a second chance for me? And I tell them, now. Now is the second chance. Every single moment you take a breath is another moment that God patiently hopes and waits that you as a sinner will repent and turn to him. God's patient. God is kind. So the question is, what are you living for? What's your hope in and will it last? Will it truly last and matter? A hundred years, two hundred years, a thousand years into eternity. Now we have to move on to the last part of the evening. An unconventional celebration in verses 18 to 20. An unconventional celebration. We're told that all the people there, they wondered at what the shepherds had, been, had told them about Jesus, the things they had experienced. And by wonder, the Bible just means they were amazed, they were surprised, they were astonished. And I think this is where we have to be really, really careful when we read the Bible, when we read the gospel specifically, not to read things into it that are not there. You have to know that astonishment in itself is not saving faith. When Jesus was alive, the same crowds that once praised him and were amazed by the things he were doing are the same people who weeks or months later were screaming to crucify that same Savior. And so being amazed is not the same as having saving faith. And I think that's, I'll show you how I got to that point, but we read it in verse 19. 
that little conjunction, but Mary. Luke's making a contrast between Mary doing something that the rest of the people did not do. And it says uh, in verse 18, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. That's a great phrase. That's what we should do on Sunday mornings. That's what we should do with our lives. That's what we should do when we read scripture to ponder these things. And it says she considered them in their heart, which is kind of an odd phrase for Americans in modern culture because we typically think of things being pondered in the mind. But in a Jewish culture, when you pondered or the center of your being was really the heart. That was the seat of your emotions. That was the seat of your will, your thoughts, of everything. And so what it's communicating is really at the core of her person, Mary was contemplating and treasuring up the significance of the events that were unfolding. And I have to think, as his mother, she knew what she was going to name him. We know from the other narratives, his name would be Jesus, which meant God saves, Yahweh saves, and that he would save people from her sin, or save people, he would save people from their sin. I don't think Mary, it's unlikely Mary knew of how that would happen, and exactly the death he would die, but she knew what he came to do. And she was struck inwardly, not just amazed outwardly at what was happening, not just smitten with awe or adoration, but actively treasuring the significance of the Savior. So again, it's ironic. The Savior's birth came surrounded by peace, but his death would come surrounded by warfare. One of my favorite Christmas quotes comes from Pastor John Piper, and he says, the goal of Christmas is Easter. The goal of Christmas is Easter. The reason Jesus came to earth is to die. He knew what he was coming into. Even during his ministry, he, he told people, the Son of Man has come. Not to, serve, not to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life, what? As a ransom for many. As a ransom for many. And so Jesus is the good shepherd. His life for his sheep's life. Jesus was born to die. He would take upon himself God's wrath rightly stored up for sinners. And I think this is a great contrast for many, many many of you sitting here between Mary and the others in the room. It's fitting. Perhaps you're someone who's been on the fringes, fringes of Christianity a long time. Maybe you've gone to church your whole life. Maybe you've come to every Christmas service. Maybe your parents are Christians and they dragged you here or whatever the case may be. You've heard the gospel. You've heard the Christmas story many, many times. And perhaps you're even someone who, at certain points, you were amazed. You were astonished. You looked with wonder at something a preacher said or somebody showed you. But it's not saving faith. It's not. You must believe at the core of your being in Christ to trust him with everything. 
do you know with certainty when you leave this building, if you, your life were to end, that you would have confidence, you would stand before God and be justified, to be declared righteous, that you've trusted in the Savior. So again, I would plead with you, if, if you're somebody in that camp, don't just be captivated. Don't just see things that are wonderful. Not that I'm wonderful, but God is awesome and God is good. And don't catch a glimpse of that and just go back as if nothing happened. Think like Mary did. Ponder, treasure these things in your heart. Consider the state of your soul and trust in Christ with saving faith before it's too late. So let's come to a close Really, this passage begins as it started. It says in verse 20, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The shepherds were nobodies. And we're nobodies too. God doesn't need us. One in 7.5 billion, not even including all the people who have ever lived on the earth. But the shepherds left the Savior's presence, praising and glorifying God. And that's the significance of them. Simple, random, insignificant persons who witnessed and heard an amazing news, but responded in simple and humble faith. Maybe some of you will become that. Maybe some of you are that. How will you respond to the Savior? We may be insignificant, but because of what Christ has done, God has actually treasured his people. Think about these things. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you so much for this narrative. This story, Lord, that's not just a story, but it's a true story. For those of you, those of us who have trusted in you, Lord, I just pray that we would ponder these things, we would treasure these things as Mary did, and that we would leave, these, leave this place praising God, praising you, Lord, for all of the glorious things you have done. We're going to go back to the mundane dregs of life, Lord, work and gifts and family and all these things, but help us not to forget. Help us to remember to treasure, and I pray for those who don't know you that they would consider the state of their soul, Lord. That they would consider what would happen to them if they died tonight. For them to consider the joys, the peace that even in this life they are totally missing because they don't know you, Lord. And so I pray that you would reveal yourself to them, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.